Genesis chapter 25 is the kind of passage that people would just skip over quickly in their day-to-day readings. It strikes us at first as a pretty mundane passage compared to some of the wonderful stories that we love in the Bible. It begins by telling us about the other sons that Abraham had by Keturah. It tells us about the death of Abraham. It runs through lists of descendants of Ishmael. It describes the birth of Esau and Jacob and introduces us to these men in a kind of normal, everyday story. Perhaps as you read this passage or heard this passage being read today, you wondered what relevance could this possibly have for us today? We know that all of the Bible is good for us, is is written for us to, to help us. But perhaps this passage is one that we just struggle with what we're meant to take from this. And yet... This passage is picked up by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, he takes this passage to help us understand perhaps one of the most challenging doctrines of the Bible. The way in which God chooses the people he will have a relationship with. The way in which God chooses the people that he will save. (coughs) This is sometimes called predestination, the doctrine of election. Words that often just get us confused as we try to think through what does the Bible actually say. It's connected with the idea that God is completely sovereign over all things, that he is the king, he is in charge of everything that happens in our world. That means that every event, every person, everything in the entire universe is overseen by God. But we struggle with these ideas. We struggle to understand God, to understand how this is possible. So why do we struggle so much with the idea of predestination or election? With the idea that God has chosen whom he wants to save? Perhaps one reason is because we don't like the idea that we are not in control of our own destiny. We like to think that we set the agenda, that we can make choices, and we can decide where we go. This is why the most popular song at funerals is My Way by Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Or we could think of the words of Whitney Houston's greatest love of all. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believed. There's this idea so prevalent in our world that we are in control, that we are in charge of our lives, that we decide what we want and what we don't. Yes, we can decide to follow God if that's what we decide is good for us. But if it doesn't work, we move on to something else. But that doesn't take account of the fact that God is really king and that he does determine our steps and he calls people to himself. The Bible teaches us clearly that God does choose whom he will save. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 tells us, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what are we to do when our view of the world and what we think is right doesn't match up with what the Bible teaches us? We can choose to think we know better than the Bible, that we know better than God, that we have moved on and understand it better. Or we can trust what God tells us, even when we don't fully understand it. Sometimes people perhaps dismiss predestination because they misunderstand it or just try to explain it away. So some people think that God chooses based on something he knows about how that person will behave in the future. That he knows that person will choose him, so he chose them before the foundation of the world. But the problem is that makes it about us. 
It means that we're actually not being saved based on what Jesus has done. We're saved based on the good people we were going to become and the decisions we were going to make. And it's not consistent with what we see in this passage before us. If God chose us based on something that we would do, then we'd be pretty smug. We'd be pretty proud that somehow we had sorted all this out. And yet the Bible calls us to humbly follow our God, to recognise that it isn't about us, that it's about the wonder of who God is, the wonder of his gospel message. And it's all about God's grace. Not one of us deserves God's mercy. And yet he rescued us. We might not fully understand God's sovereignty, predestination, any of this, but I think we can understand some key principles of it. We see that predestination is actually meant to encourage us, not confuse us. It's meant to assure us of God's love, assure us that we can never fall out of his hand, assure us that he cares for us. And even though we don't deserve his mercy, he will rescue us. And as much as Genesis 25 might not seem like the most interesting passage in the Bible, it actually helps us to understand two vital aspects of how God works in our world, how he chooses people, and how, and that helps us to gain a greater insight into the wonder of the gospel. So I want us to see two things this morning. God's choice is about grace, not merit, and God's choice is contrary to man's wisdom. So first of all, God's choice is about grace, not merit. Chapter 25 begins with Abraham taking another wife, Keturah, following the death of Sarah. And then we're told of all these other children that Abraham had to Keturah. We're then reminded in the death of Abraham that he had two other sons, Isaac and Ishmael, who come together to bury their father. We then see the descendants of Ishmael. And as we see the descendants of Ishmael, we are reminded of God's promise to Ishmael that he would make him a great nation. In Genesis 17, verse 20, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, will make him fruitful, will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But already in this process, God is choosing for himself who he wants. And he has started to be revealed. Because God chose Sarah, not Hagar, not Keturah, to be the mother of the child of promise. God likewise chose Isaac long before Isaac was ever even born to be the heir of Abraham. Abraham had several wives, many children, but only Isaac was the child of the promise. Only Isaac was the one that God chose. In Romans 9 verses 6 to 9, Paul puts it like this or explains it like this. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and say shall have a son. Returning to Genesis, the process of God choosing continues in the child, children of Isaac. Jacob is chosen as the child of the promise as opposed to his twin brother Esau, the older one, who in the natural order of things would have been the one who inherited the double portion. But in this case, Jacob is the one who is chosen. Before we get to that, of course, we see the faithfulness of God again reiterated. Isaac and Rebekah are struggling to conceive just like Abraham and Sarah before them. But encouragingly, they don't set about some scheme in order to have children a different way. Instead, they pray to God. 
and God answers their prayer, Rebecca conceives twin boys. The children struggle within her, but the Lord declares, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Each of these children will be the father of a mighty nation of people. Of these two nations, one of them will prevail over the other. Of the two sons, the older would not be preeminent. As I said, normally the firstborn son would be the heir. The blessings would flow through him. But God declares the younger will be the child of the promise. Now that prophecy was very significant for Rebecca at the time. It starts to make her think through what's going on. But it also helps us as Christians to start to understand the principle of divine election. Before the birth of the children, God determined it would be the younger who possessed the birthright and thus be the heir of Isaac. And in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul refers to this, going to verse 10 of Romans 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. While God, obviously, in his omniscience, knew the deeds of both of these sons from eternity past, he knew what Esau would do, he knew what Jacob would do. But Paul tells us the choice was not about that. The choice was not about the good or bad that they were going to do. It was not about their works. It was about God who calls. Jacob was chosen in the womb without any regard to what he would do in the future. In other words, God's election wasn't based on some kind of foreknowledge as some people who like to think. God's choice was determined by his will alone. Not our works, not what we do. So God declares, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now that language probably seems quite strong to us, but it's actually covenant language. It's revealing that the opposite of love is hatred, and it's the covenant love that God will show to Jacob that will not be shown to Esau. Jacob will be the child of the promise, the child of the covenant, the one through whom God will bless the whole world. The events surrounding the birth of these twins give further evidence to the truth of the words that the Lord spoke to Rebekah when her days to give birth were completed. Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Esau is born first. He comes out of the womb um, red and hairy. The Hebrew words used to describe the colour of Esau sound similar to the word Edom and may have been the reason why he got this nickname in verse 30. And the Edomites later in the Bible are the ones who came from Esau. Jacob comes forth grasping the heel of his brother Esau. And his name, therefore, is similar to the Hebrew word for heel. But there's also a deeper meaning here. The word also seems to mean something like surplanter, in the sense that he will take the position of another. Immediately following on from the story of the birth and the introduction of these boys, we're given the rather strange story of the selling of a birthright for a bowl of stew. Doesn't seem like a normal thing to do, but once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. 
Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright to me? Jacob said, swear it to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Esau, firstborn son, by custom would have gotten a double portion, the lion's share of the property. Jacob is asking him to trade that birthright for a pot of stew. And Esau agrees. The trade is completely disproportionate. And it's extremely unlikely that Esau would actually have died of starvation. But it shows us the character of Esau. He doesn't care about his birthright. He despises it. He doesn't value it at all. How could he do this? How could he give away this precious gift for such an insignificant price? Well, Migam Jacobs, um, a Bible commentator, puts it like this. By seeing food as more desirable than his birthright, Esau is persuaded to resolve a temporary problem with a solution that has permanent consequences. He's a caricature of the one who gives away his home for a bottle of whiskey or a drug fix. Esau's someone who cares more about the present than the future. He's no delayed gratification. He's interested in the immediate, the here and now. He doesn't think about the future. He isn't interested in spiritual things. He just wants what he can have right now. And of course, we need to learn a lesson from Esau. As disciples of Jesus, we have this wonderful spiritual gift in our life that we have come to know the Lord of the universe, that he has rescued us in Christ. But how often do we take it for granted? How often do we go about our lives more interested in what's before us than about eternal things? How often are we not interested in reading the Bible, in spending time with God, in sharing our faith with others, in gathering with Christians to worship? How often do we not appreciate all the good things that Jesus has given us, preferring instead the things of the world? There are moments when we are all like Esau, when we all would be willing to spell our birthright for a bowl of soup. Jesus doesn't lead to immediate gratification. The world is hard at times, but the future glory with Christ is far better. The Christian life is meaningful and it brings significance to our life, but sometimes we just go for something else, something easier. Instead, though, we must focus on the things of God and not despise our birthright. So with all this description of Esau and what he is like and his character, you might think, surely God was right to choose Jacob. Esau's a bit of a mess. He doesn't care about his birthright. He despises it. He doesn't care about God. God was right. Jacob was the one that God should have chosen. And yet, did you notice that Jacob doesn't come off much better in this story? The story also serves to introduce us to the character of Jacob. Who is Jacob? A manipulator. A supplanter. One who does think about the future, but not for the good of others. So that selfishly he can have his own advantage. He sees a, an opportunity and he grabs it. He's greedy for the inheritance. So he takes advantage of his brother. Jacob should have been kind to his brother. He should have showed hospitality to his brother. But instead he seizes the moment to take the birthright away. So if Jacob is so bad... Why would God choose him? But actually, that's the very point of the passage. Jacob isn't chosen over Esau because he's a better person. Neither of them deserves God's mercy and grace 
and yet God chooses Jacob. And it's here we start to see the wonders of the gospel, that not one of us deserves to be chosen. Each one of us has failed God more times than we can count. Each one of us has manipulated others, tried to work situations to our advantage. Each one of us has sinned and deserves nothing from God. But God has chosen to rescue us. And this should be an encouragement to us. That our salvation isn't based on something we have done, something we have accomplished. Instead, it's based upon God alone. And that's why it will never fail. If it was about us, if it was about something that we had done to merit our salvation, we'd be under this constant pressure that we might mess it up. That we might somehow do something that would throw it all away. We'd have this constant fear that we could lose God's love. But instead, predestination encourages us with the absolute assurance of God's love for us through Christ. He chose us as his people to rescue us. He set in motion a plan throughout all of history to rescue us. The plan that went through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, leading all the way to the birth of Jesus. That Jesus came into the world to die for us so that we could be forgiven and accepted and welcomed into God's family. Not accepted because of anything about us, but entirely because of the all-surpassing mercy and grace of God. You might feel today that you don't belong, but God has sovereignly called you to this place because he is in control. You might think you're not from the right background. You don't have the right past experiences. Maybe something you think you've done in the past disqualifies you from becoming a Christian, or that something in your life now is getting in the way. But the Bible's clear that none of that is what allows or prevents God from choosing you. In Romans 9, in some ways, the situation was reversed because the Jews didn't think there was something stopping them coming to God. Instead, they thought that because they were children of Abraham, they were right with God. They were born into it. But Paul points out that the true Israel are those who trust in God by faith. He's making the point that not everyone who comes from this, this, this descendant of Abraham, not all Israel who comes from the descendant of Israel are Israel. In other words, it's not about physical descent. It's not about who your parents were, who your father was. It's about God's choice. Isaac is chosen instead of Ishmael to receive the promise. But as we saw in Romans 9 verses 10 to 13, Paul turns to the story of Jacob and Esau in order to make his point. The story of Isaac and Ishmael makes the point that relationship with God is not the result of human effort or status but rather the consequence of divine mercy. Both, both Isaac and Ishmael are descendants of Abraham, but one is chosen and the other is not. But we also know that Isaac and Ishmael had different mothers. So maybe it was to do with the fact that it was Sarah and Abraham, not Abraham and Hagar, that were chosen. But when we turn to verses 10 to 13 of Romans 9, we see that Jacob and Esau are born at the same time, pretty much. One comes out first, but they're born the same conception. They're born together to the same mother, the same father. They had everything the same in terms of how they came into the world. And yet, God reverses the expected order. He chooses the younger rather than the older. And Paul tells his audience that God chose Jacob rather than Esau even before they'd done anything good or anything bad. Paul is showing us that anyone who has responded to the gospel 
has done so not because of our own goodness, our own status, our upbringing, our efforts, but entirely because of God's mercy. The significance of the use of the Jacob Esau story in Romans has the same ramifications for us as it did for the original audience. First, it assures us that God keeps his promises. We see that all through the Old Testament, God keeps his promises. But it also reminds us, our relationship with God through Christ is not about us. It's about God's merciful choice. Some people act as if God chose us because we were somehow destined to be the superior ones, that we've come to understand all this. But that's nonsense. We must never think as Christians we're superior or better than anyone else. God's sovereignty, by contrast, actually teaches us that we are exactly the same as everyone else. But God showed us mercy, brought us into the relationship with him that we never deserved. The proper response to this can only be worship, to give thanks to God for all he's done to us and obey him in our lives. We should also never think that the choice of Isaac and Jacob means that God abandoned Ishmael and Esau as if he was somehow treating them badly. Because remember, the passage tells us, and the passage we read previously about Ishmael tells us, that God cared for Ishmael. God cared for Esau. God looked after them, provided for them, brought them much uh, riches, and made them into great nations. To say that he never cared for them is to misrepresent the character of God. In both cases, we see that God does care and love the non-elect. He provides for Ishmael. He provides for Esau. And this shows us that God provides and cares for everyone in our world. That's why he calls us to recognize that everyone in this world is made in God's image. And we are called to show loving kindness to everyone. But at the same time, we recognize there's a special way in which God has chosen a people for himself. And we rejoice that he chose us, even though we don't deserve it. Even though we know our own weaknesses to be part of his kingdom. And there's a second principle of God's sovereignty we see in this passage as well. That God's choice is contrary to man's wisdom. In Paul's first letter to Corinthians, he says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Walter Braggerman points out that the story of Jacob presents Jacob in his crude mixture of motives. The grandson of the promise is a rascal compared to his faithful grandfather Abraham or his successful father Isaac. The story of Jacob helps us to see the way God uses this foolish, weak manipulator to accomplish his purposes. If it was up to us, we choose the wise, we choose the powerful, we choose the influential in our world, the respectable people, so that the world will see that they serve God and will follow them. By contrast, God chooses messed up people just like us. We would choose the hunter, but God chooses the quiet boy. In a world where Christians can often feel discouraged, where we can often feel we're not influential, not important, that people look down on us. But God's economy means that we are part of his plan, that he purposely chooses the weakest, the least important in the eyes of the world. Why? So that all the glory All the praise would go to him. But it's not about what we are able to achieve by our abilities. It's about what God can achieve through his sovereign will. 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31 tells us that God does this so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul wants us to take encouragement from the fact that in the eyes of the world we are weak. We have no influence, no power. Because that shows all the more clearly that Jesus will be the one who achieves the victory. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God chooses Jesus, who was considered foolish in the world. He chose to send him to the cross where he was despised. But through him, he became the power of God to rescue us. And if God can use Jesus, this poor Jewish man born in poverty, to transform the world, then he too can use weak people like us. Because it's not about us, it's about what God does. Someone once asked a boy playing a baseball match how his team was doing. And the ball replied that his team were doing really well. They were behind 17 to 0. The man asked him, how could he be so confident when they're behind 17 to 0? And he said, oh, we haven't been up to bat yet. Sometimes it's easy to look at our world, to look at the evil and think that God is losing. But God has promised a day when victory will come and he will use the weak. He will use us for his glory. And his sovereign promises will come to pass and Jesus will reign. And he will reign forever. That should encourage us now. In Genesis 25, you can't avoid the fact that we clearly see this principle of divine election or predestination on display. Out of all the sons of Abraham, God chose Isaac. Isaac, not Ishmael, not the other sons, was to be the heir of the promise. Sarah, not Hagar, not Keter, was to be the mother of the child. God's choice is not determined by his knowledge of the good works that the chosen will later accomplish. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob all had very obvious, visible faults. Their conduct wasn't any better than the people around them. In fact, sometimes the people around them behave much better than they do. But God saves us by his grace and mercy, and that should encourage us. Perhaps you still struggle with the idea of God choosing some and not others. You maybe start to question, well, surely that's unfair to those who are not chosen. This isn't easy. But this is where I think B.B. Warfield sums it up so well to help us understand. When Christ stood at the door of Lazarus's tomb and cried, Lazarus, come forth, only Lazarus, of all the dead that lay in the gloom of that grave in Palestine, or throughout the whole world, heard his mighty voice which raises the dead and came forth. Shall we say that the election of Lazarus to be called forth from the tomb consigned all the immense multitude of the dead to hopeless physical decay? It left them in no doubt, in death, in which they were holding, and to all that comes out of this death. But it was not it which brought death upon them, or which kept them in his power. When God calls out of the human race, lying dead in their trespasses and sins, some here, some there, some everywhere, a great multitude which no man can number, to raise them by his almighty grace out of the death, out of their death and sin, and bring them to glory, his electing grace is glorified in the salvation it works. It has nothing to do with the death of the sinner, but only with the living again of the sinner whom he calls to life. The one and single work of election is salvation. 
The point is that all had died and they were dead because of what they had done. All deserve death, deserve punishment because of what we have done. But God in his mercy calls us to, to be saved. In Romans 16, we're told of the judgment that will be poured out upon those who reject God and worship the beast. And the words spoken by the angel express the same truth that B.B. Warfield was saying. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. The message of the Bible is that all of us deserve the wrath of God. All of us have sinned. The message of the gospel, though, is that God has provided a solution for our sins. The solution is the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, that he bore the punishment we deserve, that he offers us the righteousness we lack. It's true that those who are saved are those whom God has chosen from eternity past. But it's also true that those who are saved are those who have personally believed in Jesus Christ as their saviour. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, it should encourage you that you have nothing you need to bring. There should be nothing that will hold you back from coming to Jesus. He died to rescue you and you must place your faith and trust in him and his promises to save. Every person who calls upon the Lord will be saved. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans tells us. That means that we can be assured that if we call on God's name, if we respond in faith, we are those that God has chosen. From our perspective, we have to come to in faith. But we then rejoice that God has been so kind to us throughout history to bring us to this place of rescuing us. For those of us who are believers, even if we struggle with what the Bible says about predestination, we must worship God because of his amazing mercy to us, giving us what we don't deserve and choosing us to serve him in this world. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your goodness to us, that you are the one who rescued us. You are the one who chose us before the foundation of the world and accomplished your plan of salvation through Jesus. And we rejoice that you have chosen us to worship you. And we pray for any who don't yet know you, that you would bring them to a point of placing their faith and trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.